listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We're in Luke chapter 3, and while you turn there, let me just uh, call your attention to um, our missions night next Sunday night. Please make plans to be there. Bring your family. It starts at 6. You can get there a few minutes early. We'll have uh, tables set up, booths set up that represent not only all of the missionaries that we support, but also the mission efforts by our church that are going on around Locust Grove and around the state of Georgia. And so let me encourage you to come and be a part of that. We'll give you a chance to interact with the people at those booths, and then uh, you'll have an opportunity at uh, 6.30 uh, to join in a service, a worship service. And Travis Sawyer will be sharing his work and preaching during that worship service. We'll be worshiping together as the people of God. But uh, I'm, I'm begging you as your pastor just to uh, set aside next Sunday night and join us. We rarely ask you as a church to do anything on Sunday night. And so please clear your calendar and come next Sunday night for our missions night. We've been sending out emails. We would love to have both of our congregations. We'll be meeting there, and it's going to be an exciting time. Some of you have never been to the McDonough building. I think you'd be really pleased with what, uh, what's happening there in that place as God uh, grows that work in that location. So next Sunday night from 6 until 7.30. If you want to hang out after 7.30, some have kids they want to get in bed, you can still hang out. We'll, we'll be there at the McDonough location um, next Sunday night. And then um, we've got a, a, a book in the bookstore uh, that probably most people don't have any issues with what this book is about, but maybe you know somebody that does. And it's called The Death of Porn by Ray Ortland, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. And um, the church sits around on its hands while pornography ravages the heart of our men and women and our families. And while we're struggling at this point in time in our history with um, an, an, a, a pandemic, uh, we call it uh, COVID-19. There is something that is having a far greater effect on hearts and minds of people, even in, in the body of Christ. Um, estimates say that 8 out of 10 men probably in the church looked at porn last night. And estimates also say that if they were under 30, they probably looked at it this morning. And we can't sit around and be silent about it. We've got about 10 of these books or 10 bucks. Um, if you don't need it, pick one up and give it to somebody else. I'm in the process of reading it. It's a great book. Um, but, but ladies and gentlemen, things can't continue the way they are for people that say they are followers of Jesus Christ. Things have to be different for us if Christ lives in our heart. It's no trifling matter. It's no joking matter. And then if you need a copy of the Scripture Journal, we've got plenty of these available. Uh, let me encourage you to pick one of those up if you need one. Uh, we've got some on the uh, Next Steps table, or if we don't, we've got plenty in the back room. As we look at uh, Luke chapter 3 this morning, I want to go back and um, just recapture uh, the first two chapters briefly. We've talked about a lot of people, and chapters 1 and 2 were basically this introduction to Luke in a broad, general way. When we come to chapter 3, we're getting an introduction to Jesus and his public ministry. We've covered about 30 years up to this point in the last two chapters. We skipped some gaps from birth to 12 and then from 12 to, to 30, 30 years old as we come to Luke chapter 3. But the thing I want you to, to, to kind of grasp this morning as we consider the text is this, that everybody we've looked at in the text of Scripture has some sense of God owning them has some sense of personal destiny. I was born for a particular purpose, and I'm going to get in this lane that God has put me in, and I'm going to drive fast in this lane, and I'm going to work hard in this lane because God owns my life. 
He owns my life. I think of Zechariah. God, God owns him and Elizabeth, and they're, they're going to the temple. They're serving God. They have this child at a very old age. Joseph and Mary, their life was, was stricken, as it were, by having this young child changed forever. But they had this sense of God owns me. God's in control of me. Simeon's in the temple. We looked at him last week, and he's looking every day for the Messiah. God owns me. This is my purpose. Anna is in the temple for 84 years. God owns me. This is my purpose. And John the Baptist, who comes on the scene, is now this guy that's been out in the wilderness with the scorpions and the rocks and wearing camel's hair and a strange girdle and eating locusts and wild honey. And all of a sudden, he appears on the scene for a very, a very brief period of time. And then all of a sudden, because... Uh, some girl does a fancy dance and some woman wants his head. They take his head, cut it off, put it on a platter and deliver it to him. And his life is over. But God owned him. And Scripture says we are bought with a price. Until the body of Christ recognizes that we are not our own, that we are owned by another, and we surrender to him, then we'll never get out of life what, we're think we're going, what we think we're going to get by trying to get meaning out of everything else but the purpose that God has for us. There was this sense of ownership. And so think about that as we read about Luke here in um, uh, John here in Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Tiberius Caesar came to power in uh, AD 14, so it puts us at the year AD 29. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. So of course, we're getting historical setting here. And Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And so he's giving us the now going from, from the world to the region to the, the places closer to Palestine here, northern, southern areas of Palestine, uh, Damascus. Verse 2, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, and Annas was defrocked as high priest in about A.D. 15, and his son-in-law Caiaphas came into power, but Annas was, uh, uh, um, Annas was the power behind the throne, kind of determining what his son-in-law Caiaphas would do. He gives us all of that historical setting to kind of like a funnel point down to the real important thing that was happening. It wasn't, it wasn't the emperor, it wasn't the governor, it wasn't the tetrarch, it wasn't the high priest, it was the word of God coming to John. You want to know what was really happening? The word of God was coming to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John unheard of to this point. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And if you're in any of those conditions and you don't get yourself right, he's saying, you are going to get engulfed and steamrolled by the salvation of God because salvation is coming and nothing's going to stop it. And you can either get in or you can get out. And if you get in, you're going to be okay. And if you choose not to get in, you're not going to be okay. It's going to be bad for you. Judgment's going to fall on you. He says in verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Salvation is coming. We move to a second section. That's the setting. The second thing we see beginning in verse 7 is the sermon. John now preaches. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, these snakes, it would grow to be about two feet long. They would look like sticks. People would pick them up. They would bite them. They were very poisonous. They were very dangerous. You read in Acts chapter 28 where the apostle Paul was gathering sticks and a snake jumped out of the fire and bit him on the hand and everybody was waiting for him to die. That was a viper. 
And John is, or John is looking at this, this crowd of religious leaders and he's calling them vipers. He's calling them poisonous. He's calling them deadly. He's calling them dangerous. Why, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Dale Ralph Davis said that, that, that John is telling them, don't pull the Abraham card. We've got Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now, right now, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We see uh, a little bit of dialogical preaching as we look at the next section. We come to verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What does repentance look like, John? What does repentance look like for me? Very specific people are asking a very specific question. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? What does repentance look like for a tax collector. And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Stop ripping people off. The soldiers come. What does repentance look like for us? And he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. There is this amazing curiosity. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. They're saying, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? He's like, let me give you, let me give you some comparison and some, some differentiation. Let me show you how low I am and how high Messiah is. That's why he said in John chapter three and verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease when he's asked the same question. But, but notice, notice what he's saying. He's saying, I'm bapti- I, ba- I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. The most menial task that anybody could do would be to unstrap the sandal of someone else. And he said, I am so unworthy that I'm not even worthy to, I can't even be raised up enough in comparison to the Messiah that I would be worthy to unstrap this man's sandal, to be his lowliest servant. Here's what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit is going to come and change your hearts, and some are going to be saved, but he's also going to come with fire. Fire is judgment. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved, and we move from the sermon to the suffering, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And then finally, we see the Savior presented before the people at the end of John's preaching. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Briefly, the, the setting this morning, we see the historical setting Luke has given us seven uh, rulers from the greatest to the least. Secondly, we see the prophetic setting. When captives captives were released from Babylon and and they went back to their homeland, this text was was written to them. That was the immediate context for Isaiah chapter 40. But the ultimate context is for the coming of Messiah. It's for the ministry of John to be introduced as one crying in the wilderness. And he's saying every obstacle absolutely will be moved. Nothing will stand in the way of Messiah's saving purpose. That ought to bring us great joy, but that ought to cause great fear. He's saying whatever's wrong, make it right. Whatever is in rebellion needs to respond with humility. Get your hearts right now. Messiah is coming. Get your relationships right. Messiah is coming. Be repentant. Messiah is coming. 
and Messiah is going to destroy the unrepentant. There's also the immediate setting. And the immediate setting is John here now in the the wilderness, and the word of the Lord has come to him. He sends a prophet out into the wilderness. He doesn't send him to the temple. He doesn't send him to the church house. He doesn't send him to the nominational headquarters. But he sends him out into the wilderness, as it were, God saying, those are not my institutions. Those people are not proclaiming my word. So the rhema of God, the the revelation of God, not the logos of God, not scripture from the Old Testament coming to John, but this unique original revelation coming to John in the wilderness. This catches people's attention when this eclectic prophet with his weird clothes, his weird diet, his weird weird ritual, his, his message, God is speaking in a unique way to humanity at a very unique time. So the word of the Lord comes. And John comes, and and we know in in this immediate setting that John comes with three themes. First of all, there is the theme of baptism. Secondly, there is the theme of repentance. Thirdly, there is the theme of forgiveness. What kind of baptism is is John preaching about? He's not preaching about New Testament baptism or whatever you want to call it. Depending on your uh, religious history or denominational history, you're going to call it something different, and I'm probably going to call it wrong, okay? All I'm saying is this is not baptism where somebody professes faith in Christ and they're dependent upon his death and his burial and his resurrection. This is not post-resurrection baptism that he's asking them to do. This is not believer's baptism. It's also not proselyte baptism. What would happen if somebody was a Gentile and a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, the Gentile would then go for a, a ritual cleansing. He would get in this, this bab- baptistry, literally would either forward or backwards dunk himself into the water, and ritually it was cleansing somebody. The Gentiles to the Jews were so dirty, they needed to be cleansed. Then they were, then they were circumcised, and after they were circumcised and obedient to the Abrahamic covenant, the symbol of the Abrahamic covenant, they were then said to be people who were like newborn babies, born again. But this was not proselyte baptism. This was not a baptism for proselytes. This was a baptism that was unique to John's ministry, and he was speaking to the Jewish people. And he's saying to the Jewish people, you've been all involved in your ritual. You've been all involved in your religion. You've been all involved in your race. But now what I'm telling you to do is I'm telling you that you're dirty. You're even dirtier than a Gentile because of your heart and your sin. And you need to come and be baptized to get ready for Messiah to come. And so this was John's baptism. But he also preached a message of repentance. The word repentance simply means to turn It means turn in such a way from your sin. It's a reorientation of your life from sin to God. And when you truly repent, your repentance produces fruit. That's what he's saying. Your repentance changes the way you live your life. Real repentance will manifest itself in concrete action. Real repentance will manifest itself in concrete action. So, so John comes on the scene. He's saying, hey, guys, you need to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from yourself. Turn from your ritual. Turn from your religion. Turn to Christ. Repent. And then not only do we see the setting in these, these themes, well, a baptism, forgiveness. Let me talk about uh, baptism, repentance, forgiveness. I forgot that. What's the message of forgiveness? The Jewish people were living under a cloud in most of their minds that said, if I can perfectly obey the law, God's going to look upon me favorably. But they kept trying and they kept trying and they kept trying and they kept trying and they couldn't succeed. But they knew there was going to be this new covenant. Jeremiah talked about it. And in the new covenant, there was going to be this forgiveness of sin. But until Christ comes and until we rest our hope in him we will never experience the forgiveness that we desperately need to make us right with holy God we're going to see that that at the end of the text 
The one who is going to forgive us of our sin is going to stand in our place, and he, in representing sinful mankind, is going to be baptized. But he is the one who is the Redeemer. He is the one who is the Savior. And so John comes with this message of baptism and repentance and forgiveness, and it was forgiveness based on God's almighty grace. So that's the setting, right? And he gives us the introduction in chapters 1 and 2, but he also almost goes back and reintroduces here 30 years later, chronologically, the life of Jesus. The second thing we see is the sermon. It's the sermon. And John didn't come with a, a robe or a sash or a lectern or a choir or a, a conehead hat um, or a, any kind of liturgy or raised up pulpit. I, I would imagine John comes and he's loud and he's animated and he is unusual and he is raw and he seems like some kind of redneck. Who's the old redneck out there in the wilderness preaching? Just having to listen to somebody that looked like John would offend most of our religious sensibilities. I'm not listening to anybody like that. His, his breath smells like locusts and wild honey. He's out there. Who knows what the, the guy, but he was just so unusual, so, uh, so weird. It, it reminds me of Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and Peter starts addressing the crowd, thousands of people there, and he's a fisherman. And he didn't just drop by the dry cleaners and pick up a new robe. He's walking around smelling like fish, talking like a, a fisherman, preaching. And they're like, who, who gives this stinking fisherman any right to say anything to us? The fact that God brings his word to him gives him the right to speak to us. Sometimes we need to get out of our religious heads and our religious hearts and our religious framework and thinking that God can only work in specific ways. God comes and brings a message to these people through this very unusual, unlikely man. And it is a harsh message. It's a harsh message, but it's also a very gracious message. If you're headed for trouble, if sin is fixing to destroy you and somebody's got the guts to stand in front of you and say, repent, you're going to die for your sin. That is love. That is love. Now, in 2021, we've redefined what love is. Love is just being nice to people. Love is not hurting anybody's feelings. Love is nobody wanting to feel any conviction. Love is, is wanting this soft, manby-pamby Jesus that would never get in your face and say that sin is going to, to destroy you. And then our churches are ravaged by sin and lives are being destroyed and marriages are being destroyed all because nobody will stand up and say the Word of God says, repent, turn from your sin. So let's, let's look, look at John's message, and I've broken it down into four parts. Number one, it's an urgent warning about coming wrath. It's an urgent warning about coming wrath. He says to them in, in verse 7, wrath is coming. And if you will look at verse number 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. The, these, these, these curious onlookers have come out into the desert theater and it's hot and it's barren and it's uninhabitable. And John comes out and calls them religious snakes, poisonous purveyors of spiritual death. Who warned you to come out? The wrath is coming. Who told you about God's wrath? And wrath is like a cup in the Bible. And it keeps getting poured into and poured into and poured into. Somebody will say, you know what? I did that and God didn't do anything about it. No, you were just pouring some more wrath. You were just pouring some more uh, explosives into the cup of wrath. You didn't get away with your sin. Some of you grew up and your parents warned you about sin. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And maybe we didn't give you gospel implications. And maybe we didn't do it all right. We just said, don't do it. And you said, you know what? I did what my parents said and God didn't strike me dead. You're just taking and storing up wrath for yourself. And one day the cup of wrath is going to be full. And when the cup of wrath is full, it's going to run over and it's going to spill out. And wrath will come. And he's telling them that. There is this wrath that is coming, and he gives them this urgent warning, and he uses these words, even now, right now. I wish I had the power to capture your heart and minds this morning to tell you that right now, right now, you stand on the precipice of sin utterly destroying you. 
I wish I could strike fear in your hearts. I remember going to church and we'd sit in those revival meetings. Sometimes they'd go two weeks, Sunday morning, Monday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. And man, if the crowd was still strong on Friday night, we'd go Saturday night. Sometimes we stay over a second week. I remember one time at my home church in Wilmington, North Carolina, we had to go to the college campus of the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and rent out Keenan Auditorium because there were so many people. And we heard, we heard messages of wrath and we heard messages of Christ coming and it, it made us believe that Jesus was going to come back before the service the next night. And he didn't. But wrath is being stored up. And he's telling these people in, in face of the, the revelation of Jesus Christ fixing to come on the scene, even right now the axe is laid to the root. Here's what he's saying. The axe is not on the rack at Lowe's. Every man needs a good axe. And every time I walk by the axe rack at Lowe's, I want to get me one, right? But he's saying the axe is not on the rack. He's saying the axe is not in the tool shed. He's saying the axe is in the hand, and, it's, and he's standing there at the tree, and he's saying, is this tree going to bear any fruit? And if this tree doesn't bear fruit, the axe is going to the root, and the tree is going to be cut down, and the tree is going to be thrown into the fire, and the tree is you and me. And the axe is the wrath of God. So he's telling this Jewish crowd, the, the, even right now, the axe is at the root. There is this graphic language. Unrepentant people should fear the axe of judgment. And if you are not bearing fruit, he would say, Wrath will be poured out on you, and it will be sudden, it will be urgent, it will be violent, it will be deadly. The judgment of God is near. The judgment of God is near. Uh, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed that a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. Every one of us is going to face judgment. And there's no other way to say it other than me lying to you or being unfaithful. But I'd rather be faithful to God than have you like me. Judgment is coming. And, and so, so John is saying to the crowd, stop trifling with sin, stop dabbling in sin, and repent. Messiah is coming. Repent. But he's also looking 41 years down the road, and he's saying judgment is coming, and judgment is going to come to Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, a guy named Titus moved in because there was a Jewish insurrection, and they just leveled the place. They, they leveled the temple. And it's estimated by Josephus that uh, over a million people died. Jewish people died. He said judgment is coming. It took 41 years. It took 41 years, but judgment came. And so an urgent warning about coming wrath. Secondly, we see an erroneous assumption about spiritual legacy. Look at verse 8. He says, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say that, he said. Here's what they were saying. I am a Jew. I am in the covenant. I have been circumcised. I have Abraham as my father. How dare you, you redneck preacher from, from somewhere down in South Mississippi somewhere, coming out here with your camel's hair and your girdle and, and your, your, your bag of grasshoppers and honey trying to tell us with our robes and our religion and all of our symbols, how dare you come in here and tell us we need to repent. That's what they're saying. We have Abraham as our father. How arrogant, how spiritually insulating. Beware of your symbols and your religion and the things that you're depending on that aren't Christ. Beware of them insulating you from hearing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody would say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm okay. I've been baptized. I'll tell you what, I'm okay. I'm a member of the church. I'll tell you what, I'm okay. My parents are believers, and therefore I'm grafted in, and I'm part of the covenant that they committed themselves to. Therefore, I'm okay. John is saying God doesn't need your hardened, corrupt 
heart. He will pour wrath out on your arrogant heart and your demented, non-theological, unbiblical reasoning and your backside will burn like a crisp in the judgment of God. And he said this in the text, and you know what I can do? I can take some rocks. I don't, I don't need you who think that just because you're a Jew and, and just because you're the descendants of Abraham, I don't need you. God doesn't need you. He can go grab some rocks and he can create children of Abraham from these rocks just like he created Adam out of the dirt of the ground. That's what he's saying. Your religious legacy is not magical. It's not voodoo. Unrepentant hearts don't avoid wrath, no matter your ritual or your DNA. This week somebody told me, they said, at our church, parents come to our church, and they take their kids through catechism, and their kids learn catechism, and then their kids get baptized, and then we never see them again because they think that some ritual is salvific. I'm here to give you bad or good news. A ritual will not save you. A ritual will not change your heart. And a ritual will not change your child's heart. Baby dedication doesn't do a flipping thing for your child. Not one thing. What's going on in your heart as you hear the gospel? Have you repented? And have you, are you bringing, are you manifesting fruit that indicates that repentance has taken place in your heart? That's what, that's what John is saying. Thirdly, he gives clear teaching about true repentance. What is true repentance? And we see beginning in verse number 10, he begins to talk about repentance. And I'll hasten through repentance because I recognize that, that we have children in the room. But let me give you what John is saying right here. John is saying this, repentance is relational. Repentance is not about you reading your Bible every day. Repentance is not about you being the holiest person in the room. Repentance is not about your, your degrees or your certificates or the classes that you've attended or all the things or the organizations that you're a part of or the necklaces that you wear or the number of, of faith symbols that you've got on your car or hanging up in your study. It, it, repentance is not about any of that. Repentance is relational. Those who have a low view of relationships probably have never repented. Because when we repent and we get right with God, it's going to impact the fruit of that repentance is going to be how we relate to people, how we treat people. So he, he basically gives them clear teaching on repentance. And he lays it out three ways that we have in the text. When these people are coming up saying, what does repentance look like for me? First of all, he says, repent of being selfish and self-serving and not being sacrificial. Repent of being selfish and self-serving and not being sacrificial. You got two tunics and somebody else doesn't have a tunic? You need to repent of being selfish and self-serving and not sacrificial. You've got plenty of food to eat and somebody else doesn't have any food? Then you're being selfish and self-serving and you need to be sacrificial. That's what he's saying. So the fruit of repentance is a life of generosity and sacrifice. A repentant heart will be an unselfish heart. Secondly, he says to the, to the tax collector, what does repentance look like for me? Stop being dishonest and taking advantage of people. Stop using people. Stop manipulating people. Stop reducing a human being to something that you, in your psychological warfare, can just play games with them. A lot of people like to play games. They like to mess with people. Some of you guys like to mess with your wife's mind. God help you. Repent of that right now. Treat her like she's a human being. Treat her like she has value and worth. Treat her like she's a child of God. Treat her like she's created in the image of God. I'm, I'm so tired of, of men who think they're spiritual men that have a low view of women. God help you. You're wrong. It's sinful. Tax collectors were manipulating people, taking advantage of people, using people. Somebody's got something. I've got the power to take it. I will take it. Repentance means that my lifestyle might take a drastic step backwards materially, monetarily, financially. 
because I'm going to stop taking advantage of people so that I can have more. Stop looking at life in terms of acquisition. What can I get? Taking advantage of, using, deceiving, using my power to my advantage. That's what, he's, that is, that's what he's saying to the tax collector. And then the soldier comes up. He wants to repent. What does repentance look like for me? Stop abusing your authority. Stop abusing your authority. Stop threatening people. Don't intimidate. Don't shake people down. Don't use strong arm tactics. Don't abuse your positions to take advantage of other people. Just, just by way of a summary statement, let me say this. The first place that sin shows up is in our relationships. The first place our sinful heart will show up is in how we relate to other human beings. And the first place that repentance shows up will be in repentance in those, in those relationships. Repentance. Clear teaching about repentance, which manifests itself, the fruit of it is relational. And I would ask you before I move to the next point, what does, relation, what do, what does, what does repentance look like to you? You need to answer that question. Every one of us in this room has some, something we need to repent of. What does, we, should, we should be saying as John is preaching, hey John, and John preaches on baptism, he preaches on repentance, he preaches on forgiveness, we should be saying, Hey, John, what does repentance look like to me? And you need to be asking the Lord, Lord, what do I need to repent of? What does repentance look like to me? What does repentance look like to me? And then the fourth thing we see in John's preaching is true humility in the face of unprecedented opportunity. John basically says, and I'll hasten through it, there is one who is mightier, mightier than I, that's greater than I, who's coming with a more powerful baptism than I am. I am a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. John had the opportunity to say, uh, yes, uh, I'm really important. I'm really important, but he didn't do that. John said, no, I am nothing and he is everything. If we have encountered Jesus, we should have the same response. If we have encountered religion, strut. Go ahead, strut. You ever been around strutting preachers? <laughs> it, it stinks. Religious crowd, we strut. We go to our conventions, we strut. We go to our pastor's meetings, we strut. If you want to find where pride is the thickest in the room, go find where a group of preachers are meeting, and we strut. But if we understood Jesus, we would say, I'm not even worthy to, uh, he must increase. I must decrease. The ministry that I have can in no way compare to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here Johnny is giving us an example of how we should respond once we understand the gospel. We see the setting, we see the sermon. But thirdly, I want you to consider John's suffering. I want you to consider John's suffering. Why did John suffer? John was arrested because he was a fearless and faithful preacher of the Word of God. John did not fear rejection. He was not afraid to address moral issues. We are embarrassed if somebody says anything about moral issues in the church today. He was not af afraid to speak to authority. He was not afraid to speak to politicians. He didn't calculate the cost Our priority should not be our security, but our faithfulness. John was not concerned about his security. He was concerned about being faithful. Our priority should not be our security, but our faithfulness. We erroneously think if that, that if we can be more secure, that we would be more faithful, and that is a lie. If I can be more secure, I'll be more faithful. No, being faithful may cost you all of your security. So John was a faithful proclaimer of the Word of God. Dale Ralph Davis said, we must always adopt an attitude that always allows for paying the price. We must always adopt an attitude that always allows for paying the price, calculating the cost. A.W. Tozer said, a scared world needs a fearless church. We need men who will stand up and fearlessly proclaim the Word of God and speak truth to, the, to power no matter how much it costs us. But we know in, in Mark chapter 6 that 
that John was imprisoned, that uh, Salome danced, that Herodias said, bring me his head, and John was beheaded all because Herod enjoyed a, a, a sensuous pornographic dance. That doesn't seem right. Mark chapter 6 tells us that Herodias had a grudge against John. You see, John came and preached the truth. He preached against sin. And when somebody stands up like John did, the old, the old redneck from the wilderness, and preaches against sin, and you've got somebody sitting around in a palace that can order people's lives around, and we feel power in, our, in and of ourselves, and somebody speaks truth to us about our sin that we love, it brings shame to us. And if we don't deal with shame in our heart, shame will immediately create contempt, and contempt will own you. And the only way to deal with shame is to run to the cross, but so often we run to contempt and we get angry. And so here we see Herodias who is seething with anger and she probably wakes up and she probably goes to sleep trying to come up with a plan to destroy John who called her out for her sin. Rather than thanking that one who warns you about your sin and calls you out of it, here's what happens. I know this all too well as a pastor, you all of a sudden become an enemy. You all of a sudden become an enemy. You all of a sudden become the guy people will cross the street and avoid talking to you if you say anything to them about their sin. If you go try to call a brother, you go and try to do Matthew 18, you all of a sudden become an enemy of people. People don't want to be told about their sin. I don't like to be told about my sin, but you need to evaluate what's going on in your heart. And so we, we need to look at this grudge. And, and I thought about this this week. Because there are so many people that sit around, even in the church, with unforgiveness in their heart. Just think about it. Listen to this. We take forgiveness in a lump sum, but we give it out in installments. Think about it. We take forgiveness in a lump sum, Jesus, give me all you got, baby. All of it right here. I'll take every bit of it. But man, somebody make me mad? Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I, it's it's, it's going to take me a long time to get over that. What is that? That's the, that's the forgiveness by installment plan. That's the forgiveness by installment plan. Some, some of the marriages in this room are on the rocks because every time something comes up, you get historical. Why? Because you didn't forgive her, because you didn't forgive him. It's, it's, it's that forgiveness by installments. I'm going to give you a little bit, but I'm going to hang on to just enough of it so that if I need the power and I need the leverage, then I've got it. How dare you hurt me? That's where most of us are. That's a subplot. I won't spend any more time on it. John suffered and ultimately gave up his life and had an extremely short ministry. The final thing I want you to see in the text, and this is what John is working up to. He's, he's coming on the scene. The, the people that knew the Old Testament would say, God's done something. God's up to something. Let me go back and check the Old Testament. They weren't sitting around watching Netflix. If they could find a copy of Isaiah somewhere, which would, would have been a per, pretty prominent scroll, they could have gone back and said, Isaiah 40, here's John. Here's, here's Malachi telling us that one like Elijah is coming. What's going on here? God must be up to something. And so John is preaching. Is John the Messiah? No, John's not the Messiah. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And in John 1, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes on the scene and he steps into the water and he's getting baptized. We see a couple of things in the baptism text in verses 21 and 22. First of all, we see the Trinity. We see the Spirit. We see the Son. We hear the Father speak, and they're all there in the same place, which, which uh, pretty much you know, uh, just removes any thought of modalism, which is, uh, is bad doctrine, which is heretical. Three, three persons in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is, is profoundly important. We see baptism, but, but the, the point, John almost glosses over it as an incident, or it's incidental, so he's not trying to get into all the details of baptism. Here we see Jesus 
praying. He obviously is in communion with the Father, which was nothing new for him, but obviously that needed to be pointed out, and it was obvious to those that were around there they could see it. But then Jesus, who is a Jew but has never sinned and doesn't need to be cleansed and doesn't need to repent of anything and doesn't need to be baptized and doesn't need to be forgiven of anything, Jesus is now stepping down into the water. Why is Jesus going down into the water? Jesus is going down into the water, and Jesus is going to be baptized by John because he is identifying with sinful humanity, number one. And secondly, he is representing sinful humanity, and he is coming forward as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes down in the water and stands in my place and in your place, and he lived a life, a perfect life, and fulfilled all righteousness and he went and hung on the cross that that was built for you and me and our sin was put on him and the father's wrath was poured out on his son and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ you and I can be set free and that's called substitutionary atonement Jesus dying for our sin in our place standing in our place he is standing in for us. It goes back to the Exodus, by the way. If you remember, the children of Israel were in Egyptian bondage, and it's time for them to be set free. And God told them, he said, look, you need to take a lamb, bring it in. You need to love on it. There needs to be a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. And then after you spend time with that lamb and you grow to love it, now you're going to kill it. You're going to sacrifice it. It's going to seem costly. It's going to seem cruel to you. I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want, to, I want you to put it on the doorpost. And the death angel is coming over because every man is unrighteous. All men are sinners and everybody deserves to die. Every one of us, the Egyptians deserve to die. The Hebrew people deserve to die. But when I see blood on the doorpost and I know that there is a substitute, that there is one who has died um, symbolically, it's a token, Old Testament says, symbolically for your sin and it was an animal, then I'm going to pass over you because death represents payment for sin. That symbol is now reality as Jesus comes on the scene as the Lamb of God and Jesus moves in and says, I stand in your place and I take your sin and I give you my Life, that's substitutionary atonement. Christ died in our place for our sin that we might have his life. And heaven is ripped open and the voice of the Father says, you are my son. This is, this is monumental. This is not a, a lamb that somebody's keeping in a house. This is not a, a, an animal somebody drug up to the temple and, and they're throwing its blood all over the altar as a substitute for them. This is what all of that pointed to. This is my beloved son. This is the son that I love. And I'm pleased with him. The son's work satisfies me and it is sufficient, it is sufficient to pay for the sins of all humanity. I am, listen to me, he's saying, I am well pleased with him, but you know what else he's saying? And if you are in him, I am well pleased with you. But if you are not in him, wrath is going to fall on you. Judgment is going to fall on you. And I would ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Have you Come before him and confess yourself a sinner. Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to God? Turn to him today. The axe is laid at the root. Even now, judgment is coming. The tree is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. You can check out John chapter 15. Basically the same thing. Are, is there fruit, is there evidence that Christ lives in you and has changed your heart? And is that fruit coming out of your life? Just some questions and I'm done. Number one, how do you respond to Scripture? How do you respond to Scripture? Is it something you look forward to? Is it something that is instrumental? Are you looking for God to speak so that you can then understand how you are to live? Secondly, how do you respond to wrath? How do you respond to wrath? The Jews were like, huh, not me. 
Ain't coming to me. I got Abraham as my father. You can, you can take that message of wrath to somebody else, Bubba. I don't want to hear that. I ain't hearing that. No way. Or somebody's like, I ain't hearing that wrath stuff. I've been hearing that all my life. My parents drug me to church all my life. All I've heard is that wrath stuff. I hadn't seen any wrath. I'm not worried about any wrath. How do you respond when you hear the message of wrath? Is there any place in you that just even at least just makes you just kind of kind of swallow hard? Like, this might be true. How do you respond to wrath? Thirdly, what does repentance look like for you? What do you need to repent of today? Fourthly, are you faithful? Are you faithful? I'll tell you one of the hardest things about doing church is, is honestly, it's just really tough to find faithful folks. It's just tough. We get our feelings hurt. We quit. I ain't doing that no more. It's just really tough to, to find folks that will say, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing this because Jesus has changed my heart, and I'm doing this because I have a heart to serve, and I'm doing this because I want to be sacrificial, and I'm doing this because I want to be generous, and I'm doing this because I love people, and I'm doing this because I care, care for people. It's just, it's just really difficult today in 2021 coming on the other side of COVID where everybody's scared they're going to die, and people have died, and... and I don't want to be critical of that. I, I completely respect that. But, but on, on the other hand, there's, there are some things, John, worth dying for. And I don't, I don't know that we possess that spirit in the church today. There's some things worth dying for. And John was faithful, and he said, you know what? I'm just going to be faithful, and I'm going to proclaim faithfulness. And if it costs me my life, I'm going to be faithful. And I would ask you this morning, are you faithful? And then finally, is Jesus Christ standing in for you? Is Jesus Christ standing in for you? I, I see Jesus standing there. John has done all that he's done. He's told the people all that he's going to tell them. He's warned them. He's captured all of their attention. And then all of a sudden, almost like just something that's happening behind the scenes, it's kind of silent. It just kind of slips in there. And Jesus steps in, stands in the water, and by the way, this is all that John has been talking about. This Savior who's going to come and stand in our place for our sin and pay the penalty so that we don't have to experience the acts being laid to the fruit so that the presence of His Spirit in our life can produce fruit. To Him be the glory. Is He standing in for you or are you just standing up for yourself?